Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I'm Director of ECFR. And I'm Susie Dennison. I'm a Senior Fellow at ECFR. Together, we're moderating this year's summer series of podcasts looking at the special relationship between the UK and the EU, what we're calling the Great Reset. Joining us today to give us some insight into the financial and economic consequences of a possible reset is Ivan Rogers. Ivan was Britain's permanent representative to the European Union from 2013 to 2017. Before that, he had been David Cameron's advisor for Europe and global issues and principal private secretary to Tony Blair from 2003 to 2006. Um, And uh, after the Brexit referendum in 2016, um, he became the key civil servant in the negotiations to leave. And maybe even more consequential than all this, I think he was uh, Susie's first boss when she joined the Treasury. (laughs) Yes. That is the most important thing that came to go. So thank you very much for joining us, Ivan. Um, Can we maybe just start with this sort of big economic picture? And we kind of, we talked uh, uh, to various people about different aspects of of what a reset might look like. Um, There are various things which, which are already taking place and can happen within the current government. But the idea of a big reset, I think it's more likely if there is a change of government and if um, there is a sort of new government that comes in in uh, uh, after the next election sometime in late 2024, early 2025, and they look at the, 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 the UK's economic situation and um, wonder whether uh, recasting relations with, uh, with the EU might make things look a bit less bleak, what will they find? Well, first of all, thanks very much for inviting me on. Uh, great, great uh, uh, to be invited. I think what they'll find um, is a pretty bleak um, economic position we're already seeing, and a pretty difficult, a very difficult public finances position. So, the first and obvious thing to say is this isn't 1997, and even though they may repeat some of the techniques of 1997 in uh, promising to uh, keep to essentially kind of Tory fiscal plans or something quite close to it, reassure the voting public that they're not going to do anything um, they can't afford and that the sums will add up, the the situation is much more difficult than it was for an incoming Labour government in 1997. Um, And uh, if uh, Labour is saying, as you're saying, that it will be a missions-led government and the primary mission of all those missions will be to deliver a sustainable rate of growth, which by the end of the decade would uh, be the highest in the G7, that's uh, that's a big target, a big ask, then it seems to me the exam question is um, indeed what you've said, which is, okay, so where does international policy, um, you know, overall trade and economic policy, relations with European Union, relations beyond the European Union, fit in with that? Where is it contributing significantly to promoting UK productivity and growth? Um, So I think that will be the starting point for Keir Starmer, Rachel Reeves, David Lammy and all the others, um, and rightly so, because if we don't get growth, um, uh, on a different scale and demonstrate we can change for the better the UK's trend rate of growth, then all their spending aspirations in multiple different areas will be extremely difficult to fulfil. The issue on um, the European relationship is, in a sense, obvious. We've ended up via the trade and cooperation agreement negotiated under Boris Johnson by uh, David Frost with really a pretty thin goods-only free trade agreement. Um, 
so tariff-free, quota-free, um, obviously it goes a bit beyond that, but there's very little in services, as indeed was pretty much inevitable once you conclude that what you want is a distant relationship with as little entanglement and political entanglement as possible. So what Labour inherits is much closer to a sort of Canadian-style deal than a Norwegian-style deal, if you go back to the kind of Michel Barnier kind of graph of where third countries, as they're called in European jargon, belong. We're much closer to a Canadian-style, very thin free trade agreement um, than we are to a Norwegian-style EEA-EFTA-type agreement. Now, what Labour is saying um, is uh, no to the single market, Primarily, I assume, on the grounds that uh, it would not want to resurrect free movement of people, partly on the grounds that it wouldn't wish to be a rule taker, uh, you know, including in areas like wholesale financial services, which uh, Susie and I both remember from our Treasury days, the extent of the obsession uh, from the Treasury of the Bank of England, but an understandable obsession. You don't want to be a rule taker in, in an area where you have you know, huge interest potentially huge comparative advantage, and you're not going to take the rules uh, produced by foreign players, uh, either in the council or in the European Parliament. So that's inevitable. So I think Labour is ruling out single market. They haven't formally, I think, ruled out customs union, but I don't see them um, building a customs union with the European Union either. And because maybe, Yeah, that, that would yeah. be good. Maybe before we kind of go into it, you can explain, because the free movement question is obviously neuralgic politically if there was one yeah. issue that seemed to be important to ordinary people during the the referendum in 2016 which was easily identifiable it was free movement and i think you yeah. know i think more so than the rules taking or or kind of abstract ideas about sovereignty but what why is the customs union so politically difficult well um, let me just deal with the free movement issue. I mean, the oddity, of course, of what we've done on free movement is we've ended free movement and both uh, both parties are now committed to it remaining ended. But we've ended up with higher net migration into the UK since Brexit than we had before Brexit. We just changed the composition of that movement. So actually, non-EU migration into the UK has massively increased. OK, there's a bit of a bump because of both Hong Kong and Ukraine. But in any case, the figures from outside the EU, over which we always had sovereign control when we were in the EU, have gone up. It's the flows from within Europe that have gone down. Does that remain the case under Labour? I assume Labour will not reintroduce any policy which uh, differenti differentiates in favour of European Union member states over um, other third countries. I may be wrong, but I'm assuming that that's where they'd go. Customs Union, the difficulty on the Customs Union is essentially the difficulty... Sorry, just, just, sorry I keep interrupting, yeah. but it's because it's very <laughs> interesting right. and important. In terms of this, I, I agree that there's been no discussion of it, but could that unlock anything if you if you didn't have kind of pure free movement but you had some sort of eu first i mean is that a thing i think it's highly difficult because there's no sort of sub varieties of free movement you either do it or you don't do it yeah. on the other hand i think labor may underestimate the problems they have with um most of the 27 on understanding on their understanding of why it is that a labor government couldn't revisit the question of free movement to people this is seen to be a classically sovereigntist uh, right-wing agenda and sort of understood as such from, uh, from the conservative wing. But I think for, for European social democrats, not just in Central and Eastern Europe, but beyond, 
explaining why the UK now appears to be entirely relaxed about very high numbers of people coming in from outside the European Union, but not at all relaxed about numbers coming from inside the European Union, is more of a political problem than I think Labour has understood. It's not that this prevents you doing anything, but I know Labour will is likely to have some some issues and some demands or some requests on, uh, you know, changing visa arrangements or mutual recognition of professional qualifications to sort of ease movement in services. I think all of that stuff in a in a negotiation with the European Union is all going to be quite difficult and problematic. Even the issue of kind of you know can musicians tours uh, tour more more easily and get visa free access across the continent so that bands can tour in the way they did before Brexit. I think there'll be a range of asks from Labour uh, as I as I see it. The difficulty is what is Labour offering in return for the European side? Because to be clear, they won't get. They won't get a negotiation started on on elements of migration and visas and mutual recognition unless the other side can agree unanimously a negotiating mandate at 27, which makes them think they can get something out of the British that they were not able to get out of Boris Johnson or David Frost. So none of that's going to be easy, I think. And just very briefly before um, we move on to the other um, aspects that you've been referring to, um, on this freedom of movement question, from a European perspective, is the British position and, and lack of offer a, a political irritant or is there an economic dimension to this as well from a European point of view? Is this Does this hurt um, from the European side and therefore would it be worth um, uh, the, the next UK government being more creative um, on, on this front in the negotiations? I don't think it hurts massively and that's one of the biggest impediments to Labour getting anywhere in a fresh political negotiation blessed by leaders is from a European Union perspective, from the 27th perspective, the trade and cooperation agreement came out pretty well asymmetrically in their favour. They may regret that the UK government under Johnson, Truss and Frost didn't want more, but they thought they won all the tricks against Johnson, Frost and Truss. And they've ended up doing an asymmetrical deal, which is more in favour of them than us and doesn't pose them huge problems in terms of access of, go- access of goods or, or services into the UK market. So they're not sitting there much. I mean, you know, there are multiple other crises running in the world which are vastly more important, yeah. but they're not thinking about the British question at the moment at all. It's not a huge problem for anybody. Somebody in Brussels said, you know, it's not in the top 20, probably not in the top 50 of our list at the moment to think about the British question. So why would one bother? We're happy with the world as it is. We regret that the UK government at the time didn't want a deeper and closer relationship, but that was their choice. We're not sitting here suffering from the absence of a, of, of a thicker and better deal with the UK. And that's, in a sense, Labour's first problem. They have to persuade the other side uh, that they're not just continuity uh, Tory government, they're not continuity Sunak. Sunak is obviously uh, uh, has a better personal relationship with von der Leyen than his predecessors and has a warmer relationship um, across the European Union with other leaders than his predecessors. Nevertheless, the question that Starmer and others will have to answer in European capitals is, is this just you know, more affable, transactional, but rather similar to Sunak in content, or is there something fundamentally different that we could do with an incoming Labour government, which goes to a much deeper relationship than a thin free trade agreement? So we want to come to that, but you're about to explain the customs union before... Um, yeah. <laughs> <to that. laughs> 
Yeah. Well, a customs union, I mean, what is it? I mean, it's um, it's a commitment, after all, to a single, a, a common external tariff. And, and the problem with a customs union of the sort, you could negotiate a customs union, and you could argue that Ollie Robbins, when working for Theresa May, uh, was negotiating a sort of quasi-customs union uh, relation relationship. But the problem with it is you you essentially abjure your trade policy sovereignty. Yeah. So, so far, term- all we've managed to do is sign up uh, the thing with New Zealand, Australia, and then the CPTP, which uh, all of which are less yeah. than, I mean, they're tight, tight, there's shrapnel that they're making up of the, the shortfall from the single market, aren't they? I mean, it's not. Yeah. There. I mean, um, look, I don't think there's much economic gain in uh, any of those. And, you know, the EU has just done a deal with New Zealand, and New Zealand, as part of that FTA with the EU, has also managed to sign up to Horizon. Um, uh, uh, the Horizon program, which the UK has yet to do. So it shows that you can perfectly well, as a third country and a CPTPP member, uh, agree free trade agreements with the EU. Is there much economics in this from a kind of treasury point of view? No. So is there much of an economic dividend over the next 10 years or so? Is there some value in the CPTPP in places like Malaysia and Vietnam, where we did previously have agreement? Maybe. Um, would, there economic, would, 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 would there be much economic value in the customs union for, for the UK if we rejoin that? There, there could be, and that could alleviate some of the kind of uh, problems that we have at the border and facilitate trade between the UK and the EU in ways which maybe did materially change the numbers. The problem is you abjure your trade sovereignty and you effectively force yourselves to align on a trade policy which has been set by others. And the, the problem that Turkey has is it, it did a customs union, but it has no rights really even of consultation about what the EU's trade policy is with third countries. So Turkey has become essentially a taker of what the EU negotiates when the Turks are not in the room and they don't have a vote on. Is that palatable? I don't think that's going to be either palatable or publicly defensible for Keir Starmer to say, well, we've essentially surrendered sovereignty over our tariff setting policy and over various other things because we think the EU can do a good job negotiating third country trade agreements for us. I mean, overall, Mark, as you know, I just think the whole issue of free trade agreements and bilateral agreements and regional agreements will matter less to an incoming Labour government than it matters to the Tories. This is a residue of hard Brexit and of people uh, thinking that post-Brexit, the UK would become a sort of um, hyper-competitive entrepot in the mid-Atlantic with light preferential trade agreements with virtually everybody on the planet. I mean, remember David Davis and others saying that in 2016. At that stage, Eurosceptics were talking about agreements with China, let alone with India and the US. And we were going to be free-floating, Singaporean, deregulated, mid-Atlantic hub with light preferential deals, hub and spoke with everybody on the planet. I mean, the reason, I mean, this has not happened. Uh, I don't think it was ever going to happen. But the world of 2023 is sadly a much colder and more difficult world than the world of 2016. And in a sense, that represents the opportunity for incoming Labour government because things are so much more difficult on multilateral trade, on the state of globalisation, on obviously everything you see on the Ukraine war, on tensions between US and China. This is a much colder environment for continental Europe and for the UK than we were all envisaging seven or eight years ago. 
and therein lies therein lies some opportunity for labor because we're in a different and much more complex world and there is a need in my view to to deepen the relationship on lots of things where we frankly barely been talking over the last seven years but in a sense, um, if the argument is, again, kind of fear-based, um, and this is about, you know, the world's become more dangerous, more competitive, US-China competition, uh, with the introduction of the IRA, um, we're seeing a, a different model of, um, of green competition, which um, the UK is, is is kind of caught between um, uh, from, from the EU point of view and, and, and the US point of view. Um, is But, you know, if the argument essentially comes down to we have to align with the, the EU because, um, uh, because that's the obvious geographical choice, um, it does sort of take us back into the the, uh, the whole uh, separation discussion and, and, yeah. and what you've been saying about whether or not we want to align, whether that's the choice that um, that the UK wants wants to be making. So, how how do you see that? Is is there a way that that narrative can be turned around? That this is a kind of a proactive choice. This is um, an opportunity for for the UK to shape the direction of travel um, in in the UK in in the EU. Sorry, um, in certain areas, or you know, do you see a way that that can kind of work with the current political? environment in the UK? Well, I think that's an extremely good question, but a very difficult one to answer. Um, and obviously, we don't know the world we'll be facing in 18 months' time yet. You know, We didn't know 18 months ago that the Russians were going to go into Ukraine and launch, their, um, uh, launch that war, which is, after all, the bloodiest war on European soil since the Second World War. We don't know in 18 months' time whether we have Donald Trump back in the White House or whether we still have Joe Biden or, or you know, neither of the above. That would fundamentally change the security picture for the European Union uh, and wider Europe, uh, us included, uh, if we were to get Trump back. And we don't know whether that's what Starmer might face in 18 months' time. And then the appetite to think afresh about the UK question might be greater on the EU side in the event that we had you know, a fundamentally anti-European uh, or anti-European Union uh, president in the White House who didn't much care about European security and was not reliable on uh, Moscow and the Kremlin, but was much more obsessed with a sharper you know, sharper exchanges uh, with with the Chinese, and we're already in a very difficult American-Chinese relationship with Europe and the UK, as you say, sandwiched between the two. What I think is would be sterile for the for Labour to get back into is this whole, you know, can we pick and choose? Can we cherry pick? Can we have a sort of quasi customs union single market relationship in areas which suit us and where we want to align, uh, but freedom to diverge where we want to diverge? I think that gets you back into the sterile debate, and I'm afraid I think the EU response would be very similar to the one that. Um, Theresa May got him back in 2017. Here's an answer well, I wrote it, earlier. I mean, you know, <laughs> my, my frustrations at the time were obvious of a kind of, I think, because she, as ex-Home Secretary, where she had a very strong track record as Home Secretary on Justice and Home Affairs, I think that view that you could pick and choose more in the way that used to work in JHA and used to work in the ex-third pillar, and the UK did have some flexibility over which legal instruments to join and which not to join. In a sense, she thought when she moved into the world of single market and customs union, she could do some of the same. And why couldn't we have a much closer relationship on manufactured goods 
than on services and why couldn't we align in certain areas and get full market access but disalign and deliberately diverge in other areas and she gradually found out that the answer to that was always going to be no and then of course Boris Johnson wanted in any case a much more distant much thinner Brexit with much more latitude to diverge because from his point of view and he told me all along when he was foreign secretary and I was working for him that the the essence the purpose of uh, Brexit was divergent. So for Labour, I think, the, the, you know, there's a, the, you don't want to go back into that sterile debate, but you do want to recognise that you're in a much colder world. You have a world of potential US-China uh, conflict, which could turn from cold to hot. Uh, America, even under Joe Biden, has taken measures which are hugely consequential, but quite damaging potentially for the European Union, for the UK, for Canada, for Korea, because they're sucking investment hmm. out of uh, partner countries into the states as a deliberate sort of act of U- uh, U.S. economic policy. We're both on the receiving end of that and having the same the same issues. We can't compete in a subsidies war against the U.S. Um, we probably can't compete against the EU either. The EU is struggling with this because the Germans may have the fiscal space to do quite a lot more than either Southern Europe or Eastern Europe or than France because their fiscal position is stronger. But that then leads you into the whole fiscal No one else debate. can afford that. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. one else can afford that. So, I mean, now, this this may sound like reasons for pessimism and kind of inertia, but it's also a reason why, you know, the German economic model has faced a huge problem post-Russia's action. The whole Merkelian economic model was, after all, based on a very mercantilist German view of its relationship with both Russia and China. And to a degree, you see in the last week or so with the uh, the German national security, the new German national security document, and what it says about you know German strategy and China, they're in a very different place now. It's not just a Titan vendor vis-a-vis Russia and Ukraine. It's a broader uh, a broader issue, but it's also a massive economic problem and a problem for the German economic model. So I think my thesis would be the UK faces a huge problem of the hard Brexit model, because in my view, most of it's blown up and demonstrably blown up. And this idea you could be a liberalised, free trading entrepreneur sitting at the centre of a functioning world trade system, but with light preferential deals with everybody on the planet is obviously not going to happen. You've got, you know, you're obviously not going to try and do it with China. You're not getting anywhere with the US. We might get somewhere with India, but, you know, it's tough to negotiate a free trade deal. But look at the German economic model as well. I mean, demonstrably, the model that has made them prosperous and successful over the last 30 or 40 years is no longer viable. Hmm. So there's a lot of scope with Germany and France for rethinking where does Europe, Europe writ large, not just the European Union, need to go? And where where does the UK come into that? So, now, the obvious place to look is defence and security. And, you know, there there are all the questions. When we were in the European Union, my instructions were usually to block virtually everything um, on defence integration and any parallel tracks and anything which looked as though it might undermine NATO and might bring about a European defence arm. But now we're not in the EU. We can't block European action. We may not want to as much. We obviously still believe in the primacy of NATO, but there is a hard defence external security agenda where the UK is and always has been a major player in European security. But beyond Europe, beyond the hard security, there's the, the economic security, 
the, the supply chains agenda, the resilience agenda, where there is a huge amount of common ground between the EU and the UK, but very little dialogue about how you take it forward. The internal security agenda, which has always been of a huge interest to Keir Starmer, Yvette Cooper and others, where we've ended up with a, again, a rather thinner deal than could, in my view, have been negotiated had we had a different kind of framework and a different mood. There's a whole lot around security, which is open to Labour, it seems to me, to explore with European partners. Ivan, before we go into security stuff, um, can we basically, because you laid out both the kind of this very uh, compelling picture of how everything's changing. You've also said that we shouldn't, um, you know, that the hard Brexit kind of delusions have been exposed for for whatever they were, even if they were possible in 2016, they're not possible in this new world that you've talked about. You also said that we shouldn't go back into a kind of cakeist yeah. space. So what does that leave for, for, for the UK? I mean, what if you were writing a kind of... Uh, memo for for a new uh, government after the elections about what space there might be to to rethink our economic and financial relationship and trading relationship with Europe. Um, what what would be some stretch goals? Well, as you probably detected from what I've said, start big rather than small, and don't start technocratic and small. Of course, there'll be a whole series of asks around kind of mobility and trade facilitation and what happens at the borders and what could happen on mutual recognition agreements and all that stuff. I think if you start there, and there is a risk that Labour will think, you know, can we just do some of this stuff via the pre-existing review of the trade and cooperation agreement, you don't get very far because it just feels to the other side like a more civilised and more affable version of cake eating. And I think the result will be the same. So I think it would be a mistake for Labour to go too technocratic, too low-key, too third order, and just start with a whole list of things that they think are wrong with the TCA or are missing in the TCA and say, could we now deal with rules of origin? Could we now deal with kind of mutual recognition agreements and conformity assessments? Could we now deal with mobility? Because I think the answer will come back, no, we can't, because the purpose of an implementation review of a trade and cooperation agreement is simply to see whether we've implemented it properly. Um, so I think you you have to start big, and that's why I would start with a kind of geostrategic position. What's changed in the last seven years? Where does Britain feel it belongs and why? And what does that mean about its, its broader commitment to the European continent, external security, internal security, economic security and prosperity, energy security, climate security? Why do I emphasise security? Because I think it creates a different paradigm and a different debate. And I think there's an appetite in capitals to think, actually, the Brits matter. They're a nuclear power. They're a P5 player. They clearly matter on, on external security. But we've rather gone missing on various other aspects of security where, because of the obsession of the current government with keeping the trade agreement as thin and light as possible and devoted only to tariffs and quotas, all the kinds of things that the EU and US are discussing themselves on the Trade and Technology Council between the EU and US are not really being discussed with the Brits. The only forum in which the Brits are playing a constructive role alongside the Europeans is the G7. Uh, and then there's a G7 plus framework. But this has been because of the allergy of the Johnson government to thinking about anything badged as EU. 
Yeah, but if, you, if Labour, if, 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 if Labour, can't, Labour has to come in, I mean, my point is, I think Labour has to come in with a proposition or a set of propositions which are bigger and bolder, but also, you know, we're dealing with, you know, in my lifetime, I think close to unprecedented challenges, the biggest threat to global security since uh, the Cold War, but potentially since the bad days of the Cold War, the potential collapse of the multilateral trading system Collapse may be overdramatic, but it's very difficult to see one making much progress in multilateral trading fora. There's not going to be a new and successful round in WTO. Sure, you can do some stuff plurilaterally with you know people you choose to do to do it with, but this is a potentially deglobalizing, fragmenting world, a breakup into competing regions with different visions, whether it's on trade or on data or on internet governance and plenty else. And there. There's just a huge amount of common ground and common thinking between the EU and the UK if both sides are thinking straight. But they're not talking to each other fundamentally about this because the whole optic of the last seven years has been, can we just do a quick and dirty and very thin free trade deal? And can we avoid talking about all the rest for fear that Big Brother over in Brussels will beat us up on it? But do you think it's possible to kind of, I mean, if you took a kind of maximalist idea around of, of security, which looked into all the things in the TTC and, you know, could look at climate security and CBAM and things like that. The relationship well, CBAM is another classic example where, you know, you need to do business. We'll be on the receipt. If we don't do business on the European ETS yeah. and find a way through that, CBAM will be a huge problem for the UK economy yeah. and a big problem for Northern Ireland. Presumably, the problem is, though, that it is so asymmetrical that in a lot of these different areas, you know, if either you join the EU and then you can be a rule maker, if not, it's going to be about taking the rules made by others. But you can't imagine a situation where the EU and the UK, you know, can have an equal relationship in terms of making rules on carbon emissions or... um, uh, And and that's a real impediment for Labour to get anywhere. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And bear in mind the degree of uh, boredom irritation, frustration, distress with dealing with the British question in other capitals over the last seven years means that you already have quite a high hurdle to jump. People think, uh, you know, the idea that there's massive enthusiasm about a new government coming in, uh, oh, great, we could have a fundamentally different negotiation with a different bunch of Brits. I would be lying to you if I said I detected that appetite around loads of capitals and people are on the the domestic side where there is potentially sort of more um, excitement about the prospects of change. um, Uh, and the space opening up because the general public is, is, is changing its position and is increasingly thinking it was sold a dud uh, in the version of Brexit that it's got. Look at the opinion polls and look at the extent of public discontent with what's really going on. So there is space for a different government to think differently as people are really rather fed up with the status quo, it seems but, to me. But thinking about the sort of the domestic audience, given that this um, very compelling, compelling narrative that you set out will take a while to kind of feed through in terms of in, into the, the the scary reports from um, the OBR, which we started with. Are there, yeah. are there things that um, you could see a kind of first term new Labour government um, uh, sort of thinking about that would demonstrate a little more quickly the value um, of, of, of going in this direction over the longer term? I think it, I think it's primarily every single aspect of security, um, as, I, as I've set out, but security has expanded now because of the 
you know, the Janet Yellen, uh, Jake Sullivan kind of agenda. Look at the Sullivan speech and the elements of that speech, the difference in Washington orthodoxy, uh, the move away from kind of trade liberalization agenda. We may like this or we may not. I'm an old-fashioned multilateralist who believes in the WTO system and wants free trade globally, and multi- but I don't believe I'm going to get it. So if you look at the components of economic policy over the next 10 or 20 years as I see them globally, and certainly in the Western world, it's around resilience, national security, it's around green transition, it's around things where in a sane world, there's a hell of a lot of business to be done between the UK and the EU, both in terms of agendas between the two of us and within our own jurisdictions and externally with Africa, Latin America. You know, you could also say the same applies on migration. We're obsessed with a kind of small boats and channel issue, but the Europeans have just negotiated the deal with Tunisia, which bears some similarities with the deal they negotiated with Turkey. Why? Because they're facing you know, analogous but much larger flows across the Mediterranean and potential collapse of states in northern Africa. And you know, we're all dealing with elements of the same problem, but we're terribly inward facing. You know, if you looked at the UK media and the UK political debate, you would think channel small boats was the only element of this issue. Well, there are many more people flowing into France and Germany and Italy than are flowing into the UK. They're all facing the same issue. I'm not saying that we're ever going to be. We're not going to be. We were not part of a common asylum policy when we were in the EU. We had an opt-out from that. We were never subjected to the kind of same... Uh, same issues on internal solidarity and the distribution of migrants around the EU. It's not going to be that, but there's a whole load of external agendas there where there's absolutely no reason why a foreign office or DFID and home office can't be working together intensively with European colleagues on different aspects of the same problem. So I think there's a whole lot. I band you to security because I think economic security, climate security, the migration issue, all the internal security issues, as I say, that I dealt with when in Brussels or in in the cabinet office, where we've ended up with a suboptimal set of arrangements, both on criminal law and on civil jurisdiction. There's a load in that, where there is much more business to be done. All of it would be difficult, and as as you basically are saying, and I think correctly. The first problem that Labour would face is, is there the appetite to think radically and deeply about can one do something fundamentally different with a new British government when everybody is, you know, hugely overworked, overburdened with one crisis after another, the appetite to think at all about the British question, except possibly in the context of this new European political community is limited. But this in the end doesn't make sense. We're facing collectively a huge crisis uh, or set of crises across our entire sort of continental space. And there's a great deal that we could be doing together, which benefited both with, without in any way sort of impinging on um, UK sovereign decisions. What a great place to end that discussion. There is, however, one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our, our bookshelf uh, segment. Ivan, is there a book that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Uh, there are many I would probably like to re- recommend. I think the one I read recently, which uh, impressed me most, is Christopher Clark's book, um, Revolutionary Spring, uh, about the uh, uh, its subtitle, Fighting for a New World, 1848 49. The 1848 revolutions were, in a sense, the, you know, the beginning of a different version of Europe after 
you know, 30 or 40 years post-Napoleon and uh, post the kind of uh, repression of the 1820s, 1830s and failed liberal revolutions. As ever with Christopher Clarke, who wrote that brilliant book as well on the run-up to the First World War on sleepwalkers. I mean, everything by Christopher Clarke is well worth reading. This is just a brilliant book on... Which which covers virtually every national element of the of the uh, of the revolutions of eighteen forty eight, but also brings out the pan European nature of it. This stuff uh, moved like wildfire across the European continent in the days where there were no social media, and yet very analogous things happened in multiple different places at once within the space of weeks. Quite extraordinary, really. But it's a brilliant it's a brilliant account of the events of eighteen forty eight eighteen forty nine. Great, fantastic. We'll put links up to all the publications mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please head to whatever platform you use to download this episode from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as it brings other people to the podcast as well. But for now, from Ivan Rogers, Susie Dennison, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Researcher for this podcast is Kiara Brika, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. <laughs>